Welcome back, everyone, to Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. What we're going to be covering today is a religion that once had followers stretching all the way from the Mediterranean and Europe to Central Asia and China. But as the title of the episode states, it's a religion that you've probably never heard of. And this is the religion of Monarchism, named after its founder, Mani. This is a belief system that by all accounts died out during the Middle Ages. There are some people on the internet today who profess to be Monarchians, but it's very hard to verify any of that. Now, Mani, the founder, lived in the 3rd century AD in what is now Iraq. Tentative life dates are born somewhere around 216 AD and dying around 274. Not that far from where Baghdad is today, there was a small village. The sources for Mani's life don't even agree on the name of that village, where Mani had been raised by his father, Patek, in a certain religious group called the Elkaseites. Now, what you have to realize is that the Elkaseites were a group that blended some elements of Judaism and Christianity. They shared a number of ideas with a little-known category of early Christians known as Gnostic. Gnostic coming from the Greek word gnosos, or knowledge, as in secret knowledge. The Gnostic groups, some of which produced their own writings, including their own versions of Gospels, were eventually declared heretical by church authorities and driven underground. The Elkaseites got their name from a legendary founder, Elkase, and his lost Book of Elkase, a work of Judeo-Christian apocalypticism, you could say, that was produced probably about a century or so before the lifetime of Mani was written in Mesopotamia, or modern Iraq, probably around the time of a major war between the Romans, led by their emperor Trajan, and the Parthians, a Central Asian nomadic people who had created an empire that fought many wars with the Romans off and on for centuries. So it was one of the classic disputed border zones of the ancient world. And we have a description of some of the ideas in the book of Elkaseh in the writings of Hippolytus, in his work entitled The Refutation of All Heresies. Keeping in mind that Hippolytus was a hostile source, he states that the Elkaseites believed that their book had been revealed to them, word for word divinely, by an angel who stood 96 miles high, was 24 miles wide at the shoulder, and left footprints that were 14 miles long and 2 miles deep. Hey, sounds plausible enough. This angel is called the Son of God by the Elkaseites, and he is a sister a female spirit of the exact same prodigious size, referred to as the Holy Ghost. And the book talked about sinners being redeemed by baptism. The Elkaseites also seem to have believed in a cycle of reincarnation of prophets going all the way back to Adam and including Jesus of Nazareth. And members of the group were expected to follow a very strict personal regimen involving ritual washing of themselves and also washing of their food. So at some point after the death of Mani's mother, his father Patek had joined this group and brought the young Mani into it, so he was raised for a number of years living under its rules. Well, at a certain point in his adult life, Mani had some kind of transformative mystical experience. Now, a lot of things written by Mani, and there are several books attributed to him, don't survive today except in quotations and fragments. But the tradition is that he started to experience visitations from what he called his syzygos in Greek. That means literally somebody who's tied together to you. So you could translate that as companion. You could also think of it as a kind of alter ego or a divine twin or a guardian angel. It's been described in many different ways. 
The Syzygos is said to have revealed the nature of the universe and of human existence to Mani. And it all boils down to an idea of a struggle between light and darkness. Not just in terms of a distinction between good and evil, but as actual physical qualities, almost like modern ideas in physics of matter and antimatter. And at the beginning of time, they were completely separate in the universe. There are also descriptions of beings of light that could be seen as angels and beings of darkness that could be perceived as demonic. Well, the beings of darkness are lustful, which sounds reasonable enough, and they desire the light. They want to merge with it, assimilate it, absorb it. And they're partially successful. There's a kind of crisis event early in the universe's history where some particles of light become trapped within matter. And this is an idea that Manichaeism has, that the material world, that matter, is actually fundamentally comprised of darkness. So it's evil. These particles of light are trying to get out. They're trying to be released. And Mani said that at the end of time, they would be. And that renewed separation of light and darkness was the ultimate endgame of the universe. So humanity is one manifestation of this entrapment of particles of light within matter. The light within individual human beings are what would be called souls. Being encased in matter keeps the soul in a state of drugged sleep, almost like sleepwalking. But if an individual learns the truth of the divine origin of their soul as a particle of light, the individual soul can take steps to prevent being reincarnated in yet another body by means of following an extremely strict lifestyle, including one of vegetarianism, celibacy, and moral behavior. Mani started to preach to his companions in this small group, claiming that their ideas on the cyclical return of prophets were correct and that he was one of them. He didn't get a very good response, especially when he started to criticize the group for their practices, like the washing of food and washing of themselves. So they attacked him, the story is. They tried to beat him up and possibly would have murdered him. His father interceded, saved him from that kind of fate. And Mani decided to leave the village and go to the nearby city of Tessaphone. Took a small group of people with him, gathered other followers over time. His father Patek also joined. And the Manichaeans divided into two subgroups based on the intensity of their lifestyles, called the elect and the hearers. The elect were a small group who were trying to break the cycle of reincarnation so they were the ones that followed the full precepts of Manichaeism, abstention from sex, abstention from the eating of meat, abstention from possessions other than one garment per year that they were allowed. And they were supposed to be traveling constantly, preaching the ideas of Manichaeism. And the hearers, the majority of the community, were tasked with caring for the elect, giving them food and lodging. According to the traditional biography, Mani actually traveled to India on a ship from a port in the Persian Gulf, spent two years there, started a small group there, and then returned and began to send disciples westward into the Roman Empire. A man named Ada led the group that headed west, and he also sent another group led by another individual named Mar Amo in an eastward direction, deep into the heartland of Persia, or modern-day Iran, and further eastward along the so-called Silk Road. Now, Mesopotamia, or Iraq today, where Mani was from, 
as well as Persia itself, have been recently brought under the control of a new Persian empire, the Sasanian Empire, named after its royal family. A man named Ardashir of that family had been a governor of part of Persia for Artabanus IV, the last king of the Parthians. And in 224 AD, he had rebelled against Artabanus IV, defeated him in battle, and become the first Sasanian ruler. The Sasanian kings thought that they were descendants of the original great Persian kings of the past, like Darius and Xerxes. Those men had been rulers of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, which had gone to war with the Greek city-states in the famous Persian Wars and had been eventually conquered by Alexander the Great. And they also had a state religion called Zoroastrianism. Mani was able to befriend a government official, a local administrator named Peroz, who introduced him to the current king of the Sasanians, Shapur I a pretty interesting individual who was a great military man and defeated three Roman emperors in battle. One of them, Valerian, he actually took prisoner and kept him as a hostage for the rest of his days in Persia, using him as his footstool anytime he climbed on or off his horse. And then when Valerian died, the story is that he was skinned and stuffed and turned into a mannequin. Eventually, Mani was introduced to Shapur, was taken to his presence, the I was very suspicious of him and actually considered executing him as a public danger, but then he saw light emanating from Mani's shoulders, and this was a revelation to him, and he changed his mind, and he began to listen to what Mani had to say. Tradition holds that Mani performed other miracles at the court of the I, including levitation. the I, as I said, listened to him. He did not actually convert to the faith but he does seem to have been pretty favorable to Mani and his disciples. He already had a reputation as a ruler that was tolerant of various religions in the Sasanian Empire. There was a sizable Jewish community in Mesopotamia, as well as various Christian groups like the Nestorian Christians who had escaped persecution in the Roman world. Now, if Shapur I had taken the plunge into Manichaeism, There would have been a severe backlash from the Zoroastrian priests or Magi, who were an influential group in Sasanian politics. After Shapur I died, his successor Varam I was far more hostile to Mani and his group. A Zoroastrian priest named Kerdir really pushed Varam to do something about the Manichaeans. He said that they were a real threat to the state. So Varam had Mani imprisoned. He had summoned him to a meeting, and Mani seems to have realized that his own life was in danger, but decided to show up anyway, was thrown into a prison cell, was tortured, and died. This happened in the Persian city of Gundishapur, and there's some conflicting reports about how Mani's corpse was treated. One author says that his body was crucified. Another states that the skin was flayed from him, and his remains were hung on display. For the rest of the religion's history, Manichaeans commemorated the date of his death, viewing him as a martyr. This was followed by a major persecution of Mani's people, and they scattered both to the east and to the west. So now we get two separate stories, because in the westward direction, they're going into the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire was just coming out of a time called the third century crisis, where many things were going wrong in the Roman world. There was an earlier episode of this show where I talked about plague in the Roman Empire in the 3rd century, and that was just one of many crises that struck. Manichaeism was able to spread to Egypt, to North Africa, also to Rome itself and other parts of Italy, 
and Gaul and Spain. So many provinces of the Roman Empire saw fairly significant Manichaean communities develop. We have no idea on the numbers here. There aren't many surviving written sources. Mani himself is said to have produced a book that included many artistic representations of his ideas. He seems to have had quite a bit of talent in that area. Unfortunately, that's just completely gone, although there are some pictures from Central Asia and China that may preserve the general look of it. But probably the most extraordinary surviving Manichaean text is a small papyrus book found in Egypt— probably dating to the 5th century AD or 400s AD, was purchased from antiquities dealers and ended up in Cologne, Germany. So it's generally called the Cologne Money Codex. It was published in the 1970s, and it's considered the smallest book to ever survive from the ancient world. How small, you ask? Well, it's only 4.5 centimeters by 3.5 centimeters, or 1.7 inches by 1.3 inches but it's got almost 200 pages. And every page has over 20 lines of Greek written on it in this tiny, tiny scribble. It's a pretty amazing creation. Probably done so that it could be smuggled around, kept in secret, because as we're going to see, Manichaeans were also eventually persecuted in the Roman world too. The Roman emperor Diocletian, who's often credited with ending the 3rd century crisis, was very suspicious of religious groups in the Roman Empire that did not adhere to the official gods and goddesses of the Roman state, the old state religion, based on gods like Jupiter. Diocletian was a very traditionalist Roman. He believed that the crises of the 3rd century had partially been caused by the anger of the gods against these religious groups. Manichaeans were one of them, and there was an additional factor here. Because the Manichaeans had come from the Sasanian Persian Empire, Diocletian and several of his advisors thought that they could be spies. They actually were refugees. They were fleeing persecution in the Sasanian world. But in the year 302, Diocletian banned the Manichaean religion outright. Copies of Manichaean scriptures were rounded up and destroyed. Manichaeans themselves, both elects and hearers, were placed under arrest. Some were executed immediately, others were sent to mines or quarries, which was a kind of slow death sentence in and of itself. And then soon afterwards, Diocletian began a persecution of Christians, who he also suspected of being enemies of the state. Now, Christianity obviously was not eliminated by his persecution, vicious as it was, and neither was the Manichaean faith. Just over a decade later, the Edict of Milan was issued by Constantine, remembered as the first ever Christian emperor of Rome, and his co-emperor Licinius, and the Edict of Milan decreed general religious toleration. There was even a popular Roman general named Sebastianus, who at one point was in the running to become an emperor, but he was, by all accounts, a Manichaean. Sebastianus was eventually killed in the Battle of Adrianople in 378 AD when a Visigothic army wiped out a Roman force and killed the Emperor Valens. Now, it's right around this time that Augustine of Hippo from North Africa, later known as St. Augustine in Christian tradition, had his own connection to Manichaeism. At the age of 19, he decided to become a Manichaean. He became a hearer, not one of the elect, but he spent nearly a decade in this role. He traveled from North Africa, his home area of what is now the country of Algeria, to Rome and Milan, other parts of Italy, and he encountered Manichaean communities there. But he eventually converted to Christianity and became a major opponent of the faith of his youth. He debated them publicly and also attacked them in his writings. One of the nastiest things that he said about them is that their lips were smeared with bird shit and holy names. 
The term is actually usually translated into English as bird lime, but that's exactly what that is. Other anti-Manichaean documents were circulating at this time. One is known as the Acta Arcali, which has been called an anti-biography designed to counteract the picture of sainthood that the Manichaeans had created for the founder of their religion. And according to this Acta Arcali, Mani was a slave who had come into possession of magical books that had belonged to another false prophet named Terebinthus, who had died after he fell off a roof of a house while trying to cast a spell. Mani became known as a healer and physician, but then when he tried and failed to heal the son of the king of Persia of a serious illness, he was jailed. He said to have bribed the jailer and escaped. The next time he shows up in public is for a debate with a Christian bishop named Archelaus, hence the title of the work. Imani is said to have been wearing kind of a bizarre costume when he showed up for this, including a pair of pants with legs of different colors. He lost the debate, walked out of it in humiliation, was later recaptured by the Persians and put to death. By the end of the 4th century AD, Christian emperors like Theodosius began to pass new legislation against the Manichaeans, punishing them with infamia or loss of civic rights. Decades later, this was extended to the death penalty by another emperor, Anastasius. Eventually, Manichaeism disappeared from the Roman world, although in Western civilization's history, when we get into the Middle Ages, we see a renewal of these ideas under a group called the Bogomils in Bulgaria and the Cathars in Western Europe. Both were also targeted by religious and political authorities of the time. The Cathars were hit with an actual crusade authorized by Pope Innocent III, and by the early 1300s, they had been wiped out. So what of its fate in the East? Well, it did better in that direction. In most places, they were never completely safe. For example, in early medieval Persia, Manichaeans would be arrested and forced to abjure the faith by spitting on a portrait of Mani himself and then eating a bird. No more detail given as to what kind of bird, whether it would be dead or alive. If they refused to carry out those acts, which would be abhorrent to any true-blooded Manichaean, they would be put to death. For a period of time, Manichaeism, like some other foreign religions, such as Zoroastrianism and Christianity, thrived in Chang'an, the capital city of the Tang dynasty. There was some suspicion of its practices, and then the religion scored a major coup, you could say, when they were able to convert the Kagan, or chieftain, of the Uyghurs, a nomadic tribe that spoke a language in the Turkic family. This Kagan Moyu was an important military ally of the Tong and helped them out when they faced a terrible rebellion called the Anlashan Rebellion. The Kagan converted in the year 763 after a conversation with four members of the Manichaean elect. We don't really know how far down the Manichaean religion went in terms of the rank and file of the Uyghurs. It might have been something followed by the Kagan, his immediate entourage or the nobility. We're not really certain. It's similar to another group that ruled in the Caucasus around this time called the Khazars, where the elites actually adopted Judaism. But for Manichaeism, this means that this was the one time in their history where they had official government support from one group, at least. Now, this Uyghur Khanate did eventually collapse. Later in the Middle Ages, the Uyghurs became Muslims, and this is the majority religion among the group today. 
But Manichaeism survived in China, particularly in southern China, for several more centuries. He did face persecution under one of the later Tang Dynasty emperors, and also in the Song Dynasty, which followed. The Manichaeans were able to blend their ideas with Buddhism and also Taoism, a native Chinese philosophy. For example, they referred to Mani as the Buddha of light, and they also claimed that Mani had been a reincarnation of Lao Tzu, the legendary founder of Taoism. The greatest invective hurled at them in China was that they were vegetarian demon worshippers. But the religion held on through the Song Dynasty in the southern coastal regions. And there is a shrine called the Kaoan Shrine in the region called Fujian that is ostensibly a Buddhist place of worship. The shrine contains a seated statue of what at first glance looks like a depiction of the Buddha, but there's a few key differences. He has straight hair and a beard, for example. An inscription says that the statue was dedicated in 1339. And this means that the Kaoan Shrine is considered the only Manichaean place of worship still standing anywhere in the world. Thanks again for joining me in another foray into Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. Follow the show on Twitter at Ancient With. Or send me an email at apuleus15, A-P-U-L-E-I-U-S-1-5, at hotmail.com. Thanks, and see you next time.